Hi, this is Joe Cummings. Welcome and thanks for listening. This Tall Tales Uncovered was sparked by the tall tale of a man who could catch wild wolves by hand in the big pasture area of Oklahoma. After you hear it, please send in your comments on the voice messages to me. It is a big help to me and greatly appreciated, and I thank you for doing it. First, we probably ought to know what the big pasture is. The big pasture was 488,000 acres of prairie land in what is now southwestern Oklahoma. The land was reserved for grazing use by the Kiowa, Comanche, and Apache tribes after the reserve was opened for settlement by a lottery conducted during June through August of 1901. The tribes, however, leased most of the land out to large ranchers and it became known as the Big Pasture. The Big Pasture was maintained for grazing until June 5, 1906, when Congress passed an act requiring that it be disposed of by allotting 160 acres to each child born into the tribes after the act of 1900. The remaining land was sold by sealed bid in December 1906, and the proceeds placed in the U.S. Treasury for the tribes, and it was made part of the Oklahoma Territory. It is said that Coronado... The Spanish explorer traveled through the middle of the Big Pasture in his search for the seven cities of gold. The Big Pasture was bounded on the south by the Red River. It was situated in the present Comanche, Cotton, and Tillman counties. It was on the eastern edge of the Great Plains. It comprised mostly of the flat grasslands with wooded draws along two creeks, some of the last significant timber west to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. By April 1905, several towns had sprung up. Ranlett, Frederick, Davidson, Walters, Temples, and Granfield. In order to see what was going on in the big pasture, we probably ought to look at wolves. The largest wolf is the Mackenzie Valley Wolf, it's 34 inches at the shoulders, 110 to 175 pounds, reported as large as 235 pounds. The gray or timber wolf was 2.2 to 2.7 feet high at the shoulder. The length is four to six and a half feet in length. Male was usually around 99 pounds, uh, up to 180 pounds has been reported. Female is around 85 pounds. More books were written about the gray wolf than any other wild species. The red wolf is between the size of a gray wolf and a coyote. They're about four feet long and stand about 26 inches at the shoulder. Red wolves weigh anywhere between 45 and 80 pounds with males averaging about 60 pounds and females about 50 pounds. One of the earliest wolf sightings in Oklahoma was by the French explorer Brevet. Brevet mentioned seeing wolves in the Wichitas on the 1765 trip to Santa Fe. The Wichita Mountains are in the Comanche County of southwestern Oklahoma. In 1718, De La Harp, while traveling through Muskogee County near the present town of Haskell, wrote, One buffalo herd was followed by a pack of wolves as large as those in France. This is significant because the observer noted the size of the wolves. Coyotes, of course, will be much smaller. 
Wolf packs frequently accompanied herds of bison and elk. In 1820, Long, traveling along the Canadian River in central Oklahoma, stated, the bison and wolves moved slowly off to the right and left, leaving a lane for the party to pass. And on the Chisholm Trail between the Cimarron River and the Salt Fork of the Arkansas River, Borum wrote in 1871, buffalo, horses, elk, deer, antelope, wolves were all mixed together. And it took several hours, several hours for them to pass so that we could proceed. Seven times in the book, The Rambler in Oklahoma by Latrobe, he referred to wolves. He noted their interaction with bison in the prairie habitat. The wolves hunt the straggling cows and calves in packs. Dave Bertalas, on tour with Washington Irving, recounted, I was awakened once or twice by a concert of wolves who howled in the thicket about 20 paces from me. We get a great deal of exercise by riding 12 leagues a day and by chasing down wolves all around us. The prairies are full of them. Their camp was near the Canadian River south of Fort Gibson, probably in what is now Muskogee County. Gold asserted that the gray wolf was still present in Oklahoma as late as 1900. According to McCarley, full-blooded red wolves were completely gone from the state of Oklahoma by 1950. So then the only wolf after 1900 in the state was the red wolf. John T. Coleman asserted that indeed there was a man who caught wild wolves by hand. In 1891, at the age of 15, Jack Abernathy jammed his hand in the mouth of a large West Texas loafer wolf. Instead of losing his fingers, he found his life's work. His fist landed at the very back of the animal's jaw. The wolf tried to bite him, but with his jowls locked open by the hand, he could exert only a stifled chomp. Unhurt, but unable to let go, Abernathy endured the stalemate until a cowboy colleague found him. They extradited the hand, wired the wolf's muzzle shut, and carried the animal home. Thus was born Catch Him Alive Jack, the alter ego that would carry Abernathy from Texas to the White House. Abernathy captured over a thousand wolves in his lifetime. He sold the animals to park zoos, traveling shows, and firms, which used them for breeding stock. He also used the animals in his own shows, catching coyotes, loafers, and large wolves in one place, and transporting them to parks and prairies where he would stick his hand in their mouths again in front of an audience. On Christmas Day, 1904, Abernathy entertained crowds at Lions Park in Texas. The owner of the park, Cecil Lyon, was a prominent Republican, and he told President Theodore Roosevelt about Abernathy. The next spring, Roosevelt, a collection of ranchers, rough riders, bankers, an assortment of cooks, waiters, and manservants, gathered at Big Pasture, Oklahoma, for a hunt with the bare-handed wolfer. For six days in April of 1905, Jack Abernathy entertained President Theodore Roosevelt in catching wild wolves by hand. In his book, Catch Him Alive Jack, he states, the president arrived around two o'clock in the afternoon. A grandstand had been erected and was packed with people waiting to catch a glimpse of him. 
American flags hung from every house and building in the little town. Several bands were playing and hundreds cheering as the president appeared on the platform of the train. He stopped, saluted the crowd, and waved his hat. Then he stepped into a waiting carriage and was driven to the grandstand two blocks away. Abernathy had several wagons at the train and supervised the unloading and hunting equipment for the camp. Meanwhile, the president was giving his speech to the people and to the many dignitaries there, which included Rough Riders, former Rough Riders like Sloan Simpson, and also Dr. Alexander Lambert of New York, the president's personal physician, and also Quanta Parker, chief of the Comanche Indians with three of his wives and one baby. Most folks know that Quanta Parker was one of the most fierce Comanche warriors. He had led his people in their last fight at the Battle of Adobe Walls and the Texas Panhandle. When the government sent the Comanche to live on the reservation near Fort Sill Indian Territory, Quanta was their last chief. Quanta was the son of a great Comanche chief, but more importantly, the most famous white captive of the Indians, Cynthia Ann Parker. She was captured when a child, small child, and she grew up to marry a great Indian chief and bear his children. Years later, she was recaptured by white folks, and so the story goes, she died of a broken heart, longing for her son, Quanta. When the Comanche were sent to the reservation, Quanta Parker took his wives and all his other people with him. He tried to help them learn to walk what he called the white man's road. And the funny thing was that the famous wolf hunt with President Theodore Roosevelt took place on Indian land owned by Quanta and his tribe. Abernathy rode up to the grandstand and made his way toward the president. Colonel Lynn seeing Abernathy, interrupted the president in the middle of his speech, exclaiming, Here comes the wolf catcher, Mr. President. President Roosevelt turned to Abernathy and said, You look like a man who could catch a wolf. I want to congratulate you, for I know you're going to do what Colonel Lyon says you can do. Then he gave me a hearty handshake. This was the beginning of a lasting friendship. As he finished his speech, he said, I came down here for a quiet hunt and rest, and I do hope and trust that I will not be bothered while in the big pasture. An hour later, the party was off to the wolf grounds. Everything was in readiness for the party when the camp was reached that night. Pullman car waiters and cooks from the train furnished the meals at the camp. A long table was spread in the dining tent. There were about 15 tents in the camp. A street was laid off, the president's tent being on one side, adjoining one occupied by Abernathy and a banker from Frederick. In the president's tent, he and Dr. Lambert slept. Across the tent street from these two, the others in the party slept, two men to each tent. After dinner, a big wood fire was built between the two groups of tents in the street, and everybody gathered around the fire. The president led off the storytelling that first night. He told of his early days as a cowboy and a ranchman in the wilds of North Dakota. He told how he went west in the early days in order to regain his health. It was during this time on the frontier of the Old West, he said that he had become so fond of outdoor sports and gained a lasting respect for Western life. Abernathy was amazed at the president's knowledge of wild animals, snakes, and even the smallest of reptiles and insects. 
and telling him stories about reptiles, President Roosevelt described in detail the difference between the poisonous and the non-poisonous. About 10.30, the storytelling ended and everybody went to bed. It was agreed that the breakfast should be served at daylight when the first chase was to be started. The next morning, the horses were fed and saddled for us as soon as the breakfast was over. We all mounted and rode south of the camp. I took the lead, said Abernathy, alongside the president as the riders started traveling south towards the Red River. Soon we sighted two gray wolves about a half a mile ahead. Inside another mile and a half of chasing, Abernathy leaped from his horse, caught the, caught the wolf by the, under the jaw, and held the animal up so that the president could see him. Bully, exclaimed the president. I haven't been skunked. This pays me for the trip to Oklahoma and corroborates Colonel Lyon's statement. But say, isn't that wolf biting you? No, it's hurting a little, but the teeth are doing no real damage. The president examined the wolf's lips and saw the position of my hand with the canine teeth in front of it. Oh, I see now, he said, but how do you get your hand behind those teeth? By practice, Mr. President. The jaws of the wolf were then wired and the animal placed inside the cage on the dog act. Then the party met the check wagon and lunch was served on the prairie. The air was cool and the day was ideal. In the afternoon, I made a second catch. Afterwards, there was considerable discussion among the riders as to how the catch could be made every time. The president said, I can't quite understand just all about this yet. Well, Mr. President, Abernathy said, you must remember that a wolf never, ever misses its aim when it snaps. When I strike at a wolf with my right hand, I know it is going into the wolf's mouth. The group started in a southeasterly direction, and Abernathy saw a wolf. They got within a hundred yards of the wolf before his dogs noticed it. They started barking and they took off like bullets, speeding after the wolf. As the black greyhound passed in front of the wolf so fast that it could not turn, the wolf fleshed its canine teeth in the hound's shoulder and split a gash six inches in length. The president saw and heard the stroke which sounded like a tearing of a piece of ducking. When Abernathy leaped to the ground, the wolf sprang straight at him. And in an instant, Abernathy had the animal at arm's length. It was one of the prettiest catches that he ever made. The president ran up and said, Abernathy, this is just amazing. Dr. Lambert was present with his Kodak. The president asked all the boys to stand back saying, I want this picture with just Abernathy and myself in it and no one else. The writers started to take after another wolf. When the wolf saw the riders start, it began running and how they can run. The pace continued for about two and a half miles. I began to notice that some of the daredevil riders who had taken the lead at first showing signs of slackening their speed. When they'd gone about three miles, the horses ahead began wringing their tails. The president, Dr. Lambert and I were about 200 yards behind the others. Abernathy turned to the president and Dr. Lambert and said that they would soon take the lead. Abernathy was first, then the president behind, and closely followed by the doctor. 
Tabernacle surprised, he could see that the wolf was still a half mile ahead. We rode another mile, then came to a draw where the banks were two to three feet high. Abernathy knew that a wolf, when crowded, always takes to rough ground. This one started right this one started right up the draw, which made it more difficult for the horses to follow at full speed. We jumped our horses over the bluff. By this time the three of us were about two miles ahead of the rest of the party. Only one dog was left in the hunt. I looked back at the president as I jumped my horse over the rough ground. Roosevelt was a superb rider and could certainly handle his horse. I realized I was making a dangerous ride, but though my life was in danger, the President of the United States was taking every chance that I was taking. The wolf turned over a prairie dog town, then crossed over to another draw. In going through this dog town, Abernathy's horse made long and short jumps, dodging the holes. He continued to jump, sometimes leaping fully 15 feet. In pursuing the wolf as it made another turn, Abernathy lost sight of the president. He was in 40 steps of the wolf, watching it closely. The wolf leapt up at Abernathy as he crossed ahead of it, and he caught Abernathy by the foot, splitting his boot. Then it fell. I heard somebody yell. Looking back over my shoulder, I saw the president about 100 yards off. He was riding more gracefully than the most experienced race rider at a derby. As I made the next turn, I leapt off the back of my horse, catching the wolf in the usual way. It had been a 10-mile chase, and I was able to capture it in front of the president. When I got my usual hold, the president leapt from his horse and ran to me. I would like to shake hands with you. This beats anything I have ever seen in my life. And believe me, I have seen a good deal. On the next morning of the hunt, I said to Mr. Roosevelt, Mr. President, I just saw one of the biggest wolves I've ever seen go right under the hill over there into the big wild onion flat. Bully, shouted the president. Let's go get it. The riders quickly assembled and we were off. We were within 150 yards of the wolf before it broke and ran back west towards Little Red Creek. Had the ground been smooth, we could have made the catch before we'd gone a mile, but it was full of cracks which were very dangerous for our horses. One horse fell throwing his rider. Just as the wolf plunged at Little Red Creek, Abernathy's horse hit the water and fell. Abernathy had his feet out of the stirrups and was thrown clear. He got a good dunking and the water was about four feet deep. He was almost on top of the wolf when he fell, and when he came up, he made a grab, landing the wolf quickly right in front of the president. Bully, said the president, just amazing. On the last day, the president asked to meet my family. They spent a very pleasant time with President Roosevelt. This meeting meant so much to Abernathy's two boys Temple and Bud, and it was partly a result of their hunt and their meeting the president that Jack Abernethy allowed his boys in 1909, five-year-old Temple and his nine-year-old brother Bud, to ride from Frederick, Oklahoma to Santa Fe, New Mexico alone, and that was only the beginning. They also went to New York, to Washington, and back east, and then returned home by automobile. They became the darlings of America. They're on the front page of newspapers everywhere.
Abernathy said that when reading the newspaper, he had no trouble in keeping tab on the kids as they journeyed east. The further east they went, the more attention they attracted. In every city in Hamlet along the route, they were a sensation. They were royally entertained at every stop. They were shown every site in the big cities of the east, which was a wonderful education for them. William H. Taft, then President of the United States, greeted them in Washington and showed them the White House. The boys sent a wireless message to Theodore Roosevelt at sea inquiring as to the arrival of the ex-president, for they wanted to meet the president at sea. In company with their dad, Jack Abernathy, the kids boarded a revenue cutter and were taken to meet Colonel Roosevelt. As they all climbed aboard the ship, Roosevelt grasped the kids' hands and exclaimed, God bless you, my boys. You have made a strenuous ride to meet me. A fleet of revenue cutters escorted the ex-president from the quarantine station into the harbor. The reception was most impressive. The salute given the ex-president by guns from the many ships and coming ashore was almost continuous. Abernathy said he would never forget this great demonstration. When they reached the dock, a large number of Rough Riders were waiting to greet their former leader in war. The horses that the Abernathy kids had rode were placed at the head of the mounted column in the parade. The line of the march was straight up Fifth Avenue. Thirty days later, the Bush Automobile Company presented the kids with a one-cylinder roadster. Abernathy shipped the horses back by rail, and the kids returned to Oklahoma in the car, riding by themselves. They were photographed in nearly every city along the route, their pictures appearing in nearly every large newspaper from New York to Oklahoma City. While president from September 1901 until March 1909, Theodore Roosevelt had in the White House nearly every kind of wild animal and reptile either mounted or alive. There were even wild snapping wolves, but they're only in moving pictures, which Abernathy had made while on vacation in the Wichita Mountains of Oklahoma in the summer of 1907. A moving picture taken in the U.S. Forest Reserve was shown twice, the first time for the president, his family, and friends, second for officials of the government. Those who attended the sewings included the Supreme Court justices, their wives and children, members of the cabinet and their families, in fact, the entire official family, more than 600 people in all. Later, these pictures were shown before several thousand at the Army and Navy headquarters in Washington. After staging the entertainment honor of the President Roosevelt in the Big Patch of Oklahoma in April of 1905, Abernathy received many flattering proposals from theatrical organizations to cities throughout the nation offering large sums of money if he would stage exhibition of wolf catching. Among the many offers was from Frank J. Bostick, Animal King, inviting Abernathy to perform at Coney Island, New York. Bostick offered him 100000 for such an exhib exhibition, exhibition to be held at Coney Island. Abernathy did not accept. A short time after the wolf hunt in the big pasture, Abernathy discussed with President Roosevelt whether he believed it would be possible to secure a moving picture of a wolf hunt. Roosevelt expressed the belief that it would be impossible to get moving pictures of such an event, but Abernathy decided to try it. Honorable James Wilson, Secretary of Agriculture, gave permission in 1907 to make the moving pictures of the wolf catch on the Forest Reserve in the Wichita Mountains and a complete camp from the Fort Sill Military Reservation was furnished. 
Four mule teams were used to haul the camp outfit up into the mountains. Our camp, or their camp, was near Blur Lake, adjoining Crater Dam, seven miles north of Cache. There was 25 men in the camp. As Abernathy rode around, he looked down towards Medicine Creek and saw a monster wolf going right toward one of the moving picture cameras. A word to his dogs, and they were off. In a minute and a half, they were within four feet of the wolf. Abernathy hit the water in Medicine Creek, and all four of the dogs piled into the stream at the same time that the wolf made a dive. Abernathy's horse hit the water at high speed and fell. Abernathy was thrown right over against the wolves and the dogs in water above his waist. He made his right hand stroke, placing his hand in the wolf's mouth. This was a most powerful wolf. It clamped down on his hand, pinching Abernathy till he was sick. At the same time, it clawed him with his front feet, tearing the shirt from his body, only the collar being left with a handkerchief which he had tied around his neck. The wolf was pulling into midstream all the time that they struggled. His claws were tearing his clothes. He was pulled under the water and by this time was in water 10 feet deep. The wolf ducked him and he also ducked the wolf. I guess they dunked each other a half a dozen times. The wolf had a death-like grip on his right hand and never did release it. Had Abernathy been able to get loose, he would have been able to swim out, but he was nearly exhausted. He was just about ready to give up all hope of getting out alive when a strong hand took hold of the handkerchief around his neck and pulled him toward the bank into shallower water. He looked up to see who it was, and it was a stranger. The stranger turned him loose in the mud and water. He had one more scuffle with the wolf. Sim Shepard, who swam his horse across the creek above where I was, came to his aid. The two of them carried the wolf up the bank. It weighed 127 pounds. Most of this picture was caught by the movie camera. It was a thriller. After I wired the wolf's muzzle and had it ready for the cage, I said, where's a fellow who saved my life? I don't know, Sim Shepard said. He has disappeared. Shepard called at the top of his voice for the man on the horse that was a stranger, but nobody answered. Then he called to the boys across the creek, asking them where the man went. They said they did not know. Abernathy felt quite sure that the man, the stranger, had saved him. He left the place as mysteriously as he'd come. If it hadn't been for him, Abernathy would not be alive to tell the story. The moving pictures were finished, and I took them to the White House. That is the best show that has ever been in the White House, said President Roosevelt. John T. Coleman said that Jack Abernathy was born in Boss County, Texas in 1876. He plowed through a series of Western personas during his lifetime. He hired on as a cowboy for the AKX Ranch at the age of nine, and by 15, he was an accomplished bronc buster riding the first saddle on 308 wild horses for the J.A. Outfit. A pianist and a fiddler, he entertained the saloon rowdies in Sweetwater, Texas. A hunter, he, he killed bears and chased wolves with greyhounds and caught wolves by hand, wild wolves. He rushed for the land in Oklahoma and fought whiskey runners in Arkansas. He wore the badges of undersheriff, posse member, deputy marshal, U.S. marshal, and secret service agent. He was a homesteader, a rancher, and a wildcat oil driller. He rode a 
loyal steed named Sam Bass and owned a heroic dog named Ketch. Wearing a six-shooter associating with characters like Blue Johnson, Post Oak Jim, and Grasshopper Roberts, and uttering phrases like, I'm a goner for keeps and hands up Keller, Jack Abernathy could lay claim to an exquisite dime novel identity. He was a singing, gun-toting cowboy lawman who busted broncos, settled wilderness, wilderness, and drilled gushers. Yet, while manly and romantic western jobs filled his resume, he chose grasping the lower jaws of a predatory canine as his first talent and principal contribution to human history. After the 1905 hunt, Abernathy performed for President Roosevelt for the next 14 years, traveling to Washington, D.C. and New York to dine and regale the president with colorful, colorful Western stories. As a result of his experience with catching wild wolves by hand in the big pasture, President Roosevelt made the Wichita Mountains the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge.